Hello and welcome to Lift Off from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this time by Squarespace and Eero. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Jason. How are you? Doing great. How are you? I'm good. It's uh, liftoff it's, time again. It's liftoff time again, and it's September again. And it is. And that means that we have a very special message for liftoff listeners. We do. So every September, we're here at Relay FM. We help celebrate and mark National Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. Uh, comes up every September, and we do that by raising support for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. You'll be thinking, well, how many kids with cancer are out there? That seems like a pretty rare thing. It's, it's Guys, it's really not. Uh, between 180,000 and 240,000 children are diagnosed each year with cancer. And treatments invented at St. Jude, help. they've helped push the overall ca- childhood cancer survival rate from 20% when the hospital opened over 50 years ago, to 80% today. That is amazing progress, really, like, within, you know, a person's lifetime, within 50 years or a little bit more. Uh, And St. Jude is not content. They're going to keep working uh, to that last uh, 20% so no child dies from cancer. And the reason that's so important to us is because my oldest son is a cancer survivor. When he was an infant, he was diagnosed with a rare form of brain cancer, And he became a St. Jude patient. He underwent chemotherapy and surgeries and countless scans, all of this stuff over the last 11 and a half years or so. And St. Jude has never charged our family a dime for it. They uh, treat all their patients, uh, and not just medical stuff, travel, food, anything they need. They just take care of it so you as a family can focus on uh, getting your child through this ordeal. And that is really cool. It makes St. Jude super unique. And that life-saving mission is made possible by people like us supporting them. So if you go to stjude.org slash relay, uh, you can donate to this. You can see we have a campaign going all through September. Keep going back to that page even after you donate because we're doing a bunch of fun live stuff. In fact, this very afternoon as we're recording this, Mike Hurley and I are going to play Flight Simulator on Twitch and hang out with people. So we're doing a lot of cool stuff as part of the fundraiser. And on Friday, September 18th, from 2 to 8 p.m. Eastern, we're hosting a live six-hour podcast-a-thon. Uh, Jason, you uh, have a big part in that. I know you've been working a lot on your mm-hmm. segment. I'm really excited to see it. It's going to be a fun time, but we're yeah. doing it for this really important reason, stjude.org slash relay. It's so important that we're we're putting it all together uh, while also covering an Apple product event. So Yeah, it's the know, same week. <laughs> it's good timing. Perfect. September's busy, you know? Just a lot of stuff. A lot, yeah, sure. Perfect time, perfect time to have uh, our fundraiser is uh, when everything else is already happening. Yeah, so, but it actually is because everybody's paying attention, and that's that's right. Important. It's, it's worked out well. Yeah. Let's get into some topics. How does that sound? All right, all right. Pre-flight checklist time. Uh, what do you have? Uh, I want to start with Insight, everyone's favorite Mars lander, not rover, <laughs> lander. It doesn't go anywhere. It's mole news. Is it? There, is there mole news, Stephen? There is some mole news, but I'm gonna I'm gonna get to that in a second. Okay. Uh, up first, we need to talk about the auxiliary payload sensor suite, or APSS. Apps. Uh, apps. Apps. Uh, so this is a set of sensors on Insight that collects data about wind speed, wind direction, air temperature, air pressure, 
and it can detect magnetic fields. So if you think about when Insight launched and what we've talked about in the past, Insight was really designed to teach us a lot more about what happens above and below the Martian surface. You know, we got rovers digging around, you know, shooting lasers at rocks and stuff, but Insight was really to teach us about the atmosphere and what that may be like. And then with the mole, which we'll talk about in a second, what uh, goes on under the surface, Mar- Mars's uh, seismic activity, its internal temperature, that sort of thing. Uh, the This payload sensor suite that does all this stuff in the atmosphere uh, quit sending data back uh, several weeks ago, t- towards the end of August. And NASA and JPL have been looking at this, and it seems like it's just tripped into safe mode because of some sort of a power issue. And they believe that rebooting the computer on the lander may bring this all back online. But, you know, it's not like restarting your iPhone, right? Which is can be a little annoying at times, but it's no big deal. You hit the button and you slide it over and then you turn it back on. Talking about a lander that no one can get to, uh, these things have to go perfectly. And so they are in the uh, in the kind of in the trenches now understanding like if we reboot this, will it come back running tests? They have uh, duplicate hardware here on earth so they can run these uh, simulations on actual hardware and see what's going to happen. Uh, it seems like they're optimistic that this won't be a long-term problem, but this like in conjunction with the mole issues, which we're going to talk about uh, insights just it's, it's had a rough, a rough time uh, this year on the surface of Mars getting, uh, getting through its mission. So hopefully this is just a, a temporary setback and they'll be able to bring this all back online because this is really important data that we need to know about Mars if we're going to be looking at sending human missions there in the future. Yeah, I think it goes to show too that it's still very hard. We we can't take for granted any Mars mission that we send because even though the that we've had a lot of uh, successful Mars missions lately, it's still a difficult place and it's a planet we don't know a lot about and it's hard right. to get there and it's hard to uh, stay there. So it, it's this is a good reminder of that that it can be difficult and the mole you know the ongoing mole challenge is a part of that too right which is it, you know it's not behaving the way we thought which on a scientific level is fascinating but on another level is super frustrating because we want to learn uh things about mars that we can't because of this uh of the instrument having trouble right so the mole was designed to be put on the surface and it would burrow its way down under the surface it was a cylinder with kind of a one sharp end that could dig, and then it had cables coming out the other end back to the lander. And it failed in its digging, and they've retried it a couple times. And last time we talked about this, they were talking about using the robotic arm on Insight to apply pressure either to the side and then later to the top of the mold to help push it into the soil, hoping that that extra friction would, you know, it would kind of be able to take off on its own from there. The risk with that, of course, is you could damage the robotic arm. And remember, you have all these wires coming up from the mole. And so pushing on it from above, you got to be really careful that you don't sever one of those or tear one of them. And then it doesn't matter what the mole sees because we can't see it, right? Right. Or what it can detect, I should say, not see. It's not not a camera. And so they have been uh, pushing it uh, slowly as it has dug and then pushing dirt and around it and pushing it again. It's now buried a little bit under the surface. This thing is supposed to go pretty far. It hasn't gone very far at all yet, uh, but it's still not digging on its own. They are planning another push with the robotic arm. 
that will only get them so far that they, they really need this thing to start digging on its own and be able to, uh, the idea was that it would, it would move dirt and, and, and debris out of the way. And then it would kind of cover itself. And so it would, it would basically like crawl down its own hole as it went and dirt falling back in would give it the friction it would need. Uh, the robotic arm can't duplicate that. Um, but that's sort of on hold, it seems like, until this issue with the sensor suite is taken care of. They they, would, they don't want to be dealing with more than one issue at a time. So my understanding is the mole is kind of on hold. Let's get this all this atmospheric data back online, and then they'll go back to uh, potentially pushing the mole a little bit further into the Martian soil. Got to be careful. Very careful. You know, you break it. We've said this before. You break it. You can't send somebody to go fix it. Like. Yeah, there's no, uh, what we're saying is there's no AAA for Martian landers. Can't just call somebody with a tow truck. But, you know, we're still rooting for the mole. Yeah, man. Go, mole, go. I'm team mole. Good. That could be a shirt. <laughs> don't have to work on the team, our team mole shirts. I no like one will understand it but us. But we'll get it. Should we move on to my uh, my next thing? Yeah, let's do it. My pre-flight checklist item it's a sad story. It's about Arecibo, the uh, radio telescope in Puerto Rico, and there's some bad news there. August 10th, the observatory at Arecibo was severely damaged. A three-inch thick auxiliary cable that supports a platform above the observatory where people are and instruments and stuff like that, and they do. It's like the, the receiver part. Uh, it's suspended above the observatory, and one of the cables uh, snapped and lashed down uh, and slammed into the reflector dish at the bottom of the Arecibo Observatory. It's a huge gash. It's 100 feet long. If you, you see a picture of it and you realize that what you're seeing is just like a big a chunk of that perfect uh, bowl is just ripped to shreds. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's shocking. Um, so they've got to fix that. They've got to make sure that after the cable snapped, that the, that instrument platform above the dish is stable. They don't know why the cable snapped, so they have to figure that out. There's a lot that's going to have to go on to get Arecibo back up and running. Um, and by the way, you may know Arecibo it has been featured in a lot of movies and TV shows. Contact is a good example. That's where Jodie Foster is at the beginning it's, you know, she's in Puerto Rico and, and up on the side of a mountain, there's this giant dish. That's Arecibo. Uh, it is one of the largest single dish radio telescopes on Earth. And even though it's more than 50 years old, it continues to be scientifically relevant. So it's important that it get back on its feet. Uh, it's currently being managed by the University of Central Flor- Florida. It's owned by the National Science Foundation. It has gone through a lot. It survived hurricanes. It survived earthquakes. Will probably survive this accident too. It's possible that some of what happened here is related uh, to uh, one of those other events that you know may have weakened this cable in some way to lead to it snapping. It is not, uh, you know, the, the equipment there is under some duress, so it's possible. So they got to figure that all out. But hopefully, Arecibo will bounce back and continue contributing science uh, as a big you know one of the biggest radio telescopes on earth but uh it's it's down for now and it's uh it's pretty sad it's it's uh shocking that photo is just really shocking because it's just uh torn into into shreds in that one corner of the dish yeah you mentioned that they have had uh, lots of of natural disasters to contend with they were actually still repairing it from where hurricane maria went through three years ago I mean, a lot of these repairs we're talking about aren't necessarily simple. You got to remember where this thing is in the world. 
not necessarily super easy to get big equipment in and out to repair this thing. And yeah, it is really sad. I mean, um, we put this on the on our blog in between our episodes, so listeners may be familiar with it already. But yeah, go look in the show notes and look at that picture. It is it is breathtaking the damage that this did, and I really hope that they can they can bring it back. I mean, it is it has a historic site and one that uh, deserves much more time and service. Uh, speaking of things that maybe deserve more time and service. Let's talk about the end of the International Space Station. I don't, I don't, wait, well, wait a second. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about the end. <laughs> what, what do you mean end? Uh, the, we're trying to avoid the end, I think is what we're, was what we're talking, hmm. uh, talking about. So to back up a little bit, you know, the International Space Station was built primarily with the space shuttle, serviced in its early years through the space shuttle, and now through a series of different capsules that, that come and go. And, over its entire lifetime, basically that work has has never stopped. I mean, uh, as recently as this year, there's been a lot of work on the electrical systems, putting in higher capacity, more efficient batteries so they can store power from the solar arrays when they're not in the sunlight, new wiring. I mean, it is kind of a... I get the sense that if you live on the International Space Station, you kind of live like part dormitory, part science lab, part construction project, right? Like all three of those things are always happening happening at once. And the question of the last several years have, has been, what does it look like when the ISS is beyond its uh, serviceable lifetime? And there there have been conversations about if CERNIC components fail or CERNIC systems fail, that may be, you know, the time to, to end it. So something like, you know, critical life support systems, or they're unable to uh, keep it from leaking. We talked about that last time. There was a small leak that uh, it's been dealt with. All that, all those factors are like always in the mind of, I think of NASA and its partners when thinking about the future of the International Space Station. So, uh, the, in the last several years, NASA has been begun to talk about this, and the way that they have talked about it is, we want to make this transition from the International Space Station just being sort of NASA's and its partners to being more open to commercial and industry players to come use its facilities and Mm -hmm. ultimately move from the ISS to perhaps multiple commercial stations in low Earth orbit. Uh, I, I don't think it's as harsh as this, but I think one way to think about this is as NASA moves into the Artemis era and then things like Gateway come online and and maybe eventually missions to Mars. As NASA moves further out, they are willing for commercial partners to sort of take over in low Earth orbit. That's not to say NASA wouldn't be involved. It's not to say they wouldn't have oversight, but their focus has already begun to shift and will continue to shift away from low Earth orbit to cislunar space and beyond. Does that make sense? Like that, that transition? Sure. Uh, that transition has really hasn't had much of a date uh, attached to it. Now, in 2018, in NASA's uh, budget request, they proposed ending federal funding of the space station in 2025. The reason you announced it this early is so you can uh, have uh, all these commercial partners ha- ha- give them incentive to be there, <laughs> ready to go 
when uh, someone turns off the lights at the International Space Station. That plan, that budget request, uh, that did not <laughs> that did not go over well in Congress, and NASA basically hasn't brought it back up. So their subsequent uh, budget requests have have not said anything about ending funding for the space station in 2025. Uh, There are engineering studies that have found that it should be able to operate through at least 2028. Again, there's a lot of question marks as it ages. You know, what what can we repair? What can we live without? That sort of thing. Um, But I say all that just to say that the future of the space station, the next couple of years, next several years even, is probably about where it's been the last several years. But you're talking towards the end of the decade, some big changes um, could be coming. And all that's hazy. Um, and that's that's where this uh, story comes in. So the former head of NASA's human spaceflight program, he now works at SpaceX, our old friend, Bill Gersenmeyer, he uh, has, has been pretty quiet since he left NASA. And he spoke at an event uh, just about a week ago talking about this very thing, talking about the future of the ISS is unknown. There, we NASA wants to make these transitions kind of in parallel, uh, but he's basically warning that we don't need to do that too soon. And he makes a historical argument, you know, that Apollo was a very single-focused mission and program, and when that was over, there was some flailing. He, th- this article doesn't mention it, but I, I, I think you could draw that line between the shuttle and where we are now, where they shut down the shuttle program. And nothing else was ready. And it's taken how many years for commercial crew to get off the ground? Like, he sees that as a risk in low Earth orbit, that America uh, and its partners could could cede their ground in low Earth orbit, if you will, could could give up that research space and the capabilities we have if this isn't timed correctly. And so he urges the community to say, look, we need to push the ISS as long as we can. Uh, while also getting these commercial companies up and running, we don't need to do that in the wrong order, if you will. Yeah, I I think it's troubling when you think about it, like the ISS has been going for 20 years and now we're at this position where, you know, the space shuttle had so many different missions to put it together, not finishing that until 2011. So the completion of the of the assembly of the of the ISS was nine years ago. And we're talking about, you know, does it even last another nine years? But at the same time, there is the reality of the fact that a lot of these modules are kind of old and, and, you know, they've been up there a long time. And there's the, you know, when I hear about engineering studies, that's the part that concerns me the most. And I know that there have been kind of wild theories about disassembling portions or replacing portions, but, you know, there's the counter argument that the ISS is not, you know, it doesn't necessarily carry its weight in terms of in terms of science, and that it's a way to keep us doing human spaceflight without going anywhere. And you know, I I I understand those criticisms, and the ISS is very expensive and was very expensive to put together. At the same time, having a constant mission in Earth orbit, even if it's a low Earth orbit, where there have been people in space working and doing interesting stuff for a couple of decades, it's hard to give that up and i think that's the thing that that you know i would feel different if there was another thing coming or if gateway was online and they were planning on having a a permanently crewed uh space station 
in cislunar space. I think that would be an interesting, like, well, we're taking the next step now and we're going to cislunar space. But I do share that same kind of concern that what we're going to end up with is a situation where we've got to turn off the lights on the ISS and there's just nothing to follow it. I think that's a real danger. I think it's a real possibility that's what happens. Uh, I think there's also the possibility that while these other things are taking place, something happens with the space station and they have to abandon it or they have to really scale back what it can do, you know, seal parts of it off or, you know, something big and dramatic. And if that happens, you know, I honestly think that that may incentivize commercial companies to get involved, but it may also show them that, oh, this is... Like, this may be harder than we thought, and it it could uh, maybe dissuade some of those companies from doing things. And remember, like, all this is happening in the shadow of Artemis. So we're going to talk about it in the SLS segment, but NASA is pouring money into the Artemis program. And clearly, at least in 2018, there was a part of NASA that said, look, you know, we need to wind this down and we need to move on to other things. Right. So there's going to be that tension, right? If the space station, if something really... bananas happens and it requires repair or extensive financial resources to keep it going nasa may not be fully behind that and and that could really throw a wrench in these plans unless there really is a commercial opportunity here but that i mean there is there is an argument to be made here and that's my way of phrasing it so i'm not sure i want to make this argument but i could see the argument that after 20 years have we have we rung everything that we need to wring out of this? Are we continuing our you know our commitment to funding the ISS does spend money that could prop, could be spent somewhere else? And after twenty years, um, maybe at least asking the question: Can commercial groups find value in this thing so that if not to pay for the whole thing, they can offset some of the money that is spent by the governments who are putting it together? And again, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know whether it's more expensive to latch on to the ISS than it is to create your own uh, your own little space habitat orbiting the Earth, except I'll point out that there, there aren't any right now except the ISS, and there very rarely have been, and none of them have been commercial, right? Like, there's lots of talk about space hotels and things like that, but they haven't happened. And, you know, but there's only so far that that Tom Cruise movie money is gonna go so mm-hmm. i don't know it's just it's it w- what troubles me about this is that is that so much of space for the last 20 years has been focused on the iss like we have celebrated commercial crew and and spacex finally making commercial crew a reality um and then before that the story of the coming of commercial crew and before that it was the shutdown of the space shuttle which was able to extend largely to build the iss and before that so many shuttle missions were about laying the groundwork for the iss and all of that evaporates in a way. Mm-hmm. And if there's nothing to come after us, like why did we go through all this effort and spend all this money and spend all this time building up the commercial crew capability and then end up with a capsule that can go into Earth orbit and there's nothing there and yeah. that's it, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, so I don't know. I, I, it's This is one of those cases where we talk about sometimes the lack of vision in terms of space and this is the ISS so it's also like the vision of of everybody other than the chinese who are doing their own thing and it, it may be that the the baton gets passed sort of unintentionally to a chinese space station if the ISS kind of fades away but you know what is the leadership about 
where humanity goes and where where crude spaceflight goes in the next decade and is a permanent outpost in low earth orbit a part of that story or have we spent the last 20 years on something and now we're just going to let it you know fall apart and not and then not because it takes years not figure out what comes next that's it's troubling it's troubling and there's and and there may be a ticking clock right like you said there may be a ticking clock that is just at some point this equipment's going to be so old that you can't just kind of kick the can down the road and hope that the ISS just continues to be viable at some point you either need to replace it or shut it down and th- there have been some inroads in replacing it so you know you said like space hotels and stuff like yeah a lot of that is sort of far fetched but Bigelow Aerospace they I mean they had a, they still have a module attached beam is still there uh, yep, Jason's favorite bouncy part of the space station. Yeah, well, I mean, the inflatable space house, and they wanted to build either a, a larger inflatable module or a self-contained inflatable module. And we we mentioned that the other day, and uh, in an episode or two ago, and somebody said, "Wait, wait, what happened to Bigelow?" And the answer is that Bigelow shut down because of uh, COVID nineteen, and it's unclear what its status is as far as I can tell about whether they are going to resume work at some point or whether they're just done. So um, it's it's out there. But that was an interesting idea of of even creating an inflatable habitat that's fairly large that you could just attach to the ISS. But we, uh, you know, that <laughs> things happen here on Earth, too. Yeah, they let off their entire entire workforce back in yep. March. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, even if you have technology that's promising, it doesn't mean that you can get it into orbit. It's a very hard thing to do. I mean, it took multiple countries to do it with the International Space Station over the course of, I mean, the main construction was over the course of a decade, right? This is not something you just walk into and to be sort of running out the clock on the on the ISS without a viable replacement or at least a viable plan, I think is why this warning has, has come up recently. Yep. Let's take a break. Okay. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move to Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea with unique domain name, award-winning templates, and more. Think about your next project or a business you want to start or just a site you want to run. Maybe you need a store or a portfolio, a blog, host a podcast. Well, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do all of that stuff. And the best part is you don't have to worry about installation or software patches or server upgrades. Squarespace simply has all of that covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. Let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, and all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. One of my favorite things about Squarespace when I'm building a site for someone in it is that you can go in and add custom CSS, so you can override things in the themes. Now, the themes look awesome, and and 99% of people don't need to do that, but if you do and you're nerdy and you know what you're doing, Squarespace still gives you the tools to do that sort of thing, but not in a way that overwhelms people who just want to build a, a beautiful website pretty quickly. I like that balance for those of us who need a little bit more. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com liftoff. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain name and to show your support for the show. Once again, that's squarespace.com liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. 
We thank Squarespace for the support of this show. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. All right, it's time, Jason, for the SLS segment, Space Launch Systems segment explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. SLS segment. Segment. It's back. SLS segment. Segment. That's all we have. We just wanted to sing the song to you. We can just... No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We have stuff to talk about. No news this week. On to the next segment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's a placeholder in our document. No, no. I want to talk about solid rocket boosters. Can we talk about that? Yeah. uh, I mean, sure. Let's do it. Why Uh, Once you start talking about it, you can't turn it off, you know? No, that's... Oh, boy. Solid rocket booster. (laughs) Yep. Got it. Reference acknowledged. Yeah. It's good, right? Jokes about how rockets work. (laughs) I, I think you've hit our demographic perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, you were tied down to a test stand when you attempted that job. Oh, that's right. Okay, so here's what's going on. Last week out in Utah, Northrop Grumman fired up a full-scale test version of the boosters it's building for the SLS. And you may think, well, Stephen, you talked a lot about how these are basically done. They're just sitting in Florida, ready to be stacked up. Uh, that's true. Uh, but there are some things here. There's a reason for this sort of late-in-the-game test. Uh, But before we get to that, just a quick refresher. The SRBs were used on the space shuttle. They're like this this tall, skinny, white rockets on the side of it. They provided uh, most of the thrust when the shuttle took off. That's the same for the SLS. Uh, The two uh, solid rocket boosters will account for roughly 75% of the rocket's thrust during the first two minutes in flight. So they are extremely, extremely powerful. These are bigger and upgraded from the shuttle ones, so they're one segment taller. They went from four to five. They have uh, more advanced technology in them, some revised nozzle technology and that sort of stuff. Uh, so they're, they're kind of upgraded from the shuttle uh, shuttle world. And the first, uh, the first parts for all of these are basically ready to go uh, and ready to be uh, stacked up. But uh, an issue showed up that... The supplier of the aluminum-based fuel could no longer, uh, basically, could no longer make the fuel. So the vendor that Northrop Grumman was using, uh, I don't know if they went out of business or something happened, but they 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 no longer could uh, meet the needs of the program. And they saw the rocket boosters. The fuel's all built into them. Once you light it, you can't turn it off. That was my very funny joke earlier. And so this is why this test took place. Northrop Grumman found a a new vendor. And they needed to test an SRB with this uh, new vendor's fuel supply. Uh, From my reading, the fuel is basically the same, but different vendor. You got to work out all the kinks, make sure everything is working. Um, And so this test was done. They they strapped down a full-scale version of this booster, just bolted it to the ground in Utah, and lit it. I'm sure scared the bejesus out of a bunch of desert animals that live in the area. Um, but it was successful. Um, and so the, the SRBs are, are continued to be good to go. All the parts for the first three launches. So the first six SRBs for the SLS program are basically ready to go. And so this new fuel, this new system would be used starting on Artemis four, if everything goes to plan. Uh, but these things of course are done years in advance. So they want to make sure they were, they were good to go. So mm-hmm. that's uh, that's what they're doing. They didn't just launch it or, or do a test just for kicks. Um, I was a little surprised to see they were doing a test until I, I read up and then saw that it was, you know, this fuel test. Because 
the SRBs are a pretty known quantity. And over the shuttle program, yes, they did have some issues with them, uh, most notably in the Challenger disaster. But they've really honed this technology in. And these are pretty much, a, I think, a, a known component of the SLS because they are just recycled and upgraded from the shuttle program. So um, these are also much further ahead than the core booster, which is still waiting uh, down south of me uh, for the green run. Um, That's still scheduled to happen at some point in the near future. Uh, so the SRBs are actually pretty much the closest to complete out of any of the major SLS components at this point. Woohoo! Man, that would have been cool to uh, see that thing go off in person. I mean, from uh, a bunker, someplace safe. Yeah, I was. <laughs> yeah, okay, from far, not, far not away. Too, I, I don't know. I don't want to cook a marshmallow behind it. You know, far away, far away, far away. But yeah, yeah, man, three three million pounds of thrust. That's a serious, serious thing. That's pretty good. I still, I still think my favorite thing that I never thought about in all of my enthusiasm for space as a kid was that the actual part of the rocket test involves firing the rocket, but with it tied down yeah it can't go like, anywhere <laughs> what but what you think of it as being like you know th- this rocket is so powerful that it flies into space and mm-hmm. the answer is yeah but we, we we tied it down so now it won't like but but how but that's what they have to do of course they have to do it but just the idea of having to counteract that amount of force it's it still kind of gives me chills oh yeah I mean, there's huge test stands they use, like where the SLS uh, is now for its its green run test. Yeah. They're massive, huge concrete and steel structures because that thing has to stay put. It can't go anywhere. It's honestly a little scary, I think, to think yeah. about. I mean, you don't want one of those rockets escaping while you're mm-hmm. testing it, right? Like nope. that would be uh, really, like one of those the the sideways uh, SRB tests where they're they're tied down and they're, you know and it's sideways and you're like that's like you're firing a torpedo <laughs> across the, the 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 water or the desert or something. It's not no, don't it's not that good. Would be bad. No. All right, let's talk about the budget. I know I don't want to do it, but someone's got to do it. And I'm in charge of the SLS segment, so (laughs) yep, it's me. Congratulations. It's me. So last week, NASA's new Associate Administrator for Human Exploration Operations, Kathy Leaders, uh, she had this blog post saying uh, a bunch of things. It kind of started out like, hey, you know, this is sort of the new date for Artemis, uh, the the first launch, of course, quoting the pandemic. Uh, We've talked about that, how NASA's had to respond to that, slowing basically everything way down especially these like building out ground support systems, doing these tests where you need a lot of people having to work in shifts around the clock, all that stuff. It's, it's affected James Webb Space Telescope as well, which we spoke about a couple of times ago. Um, but there are some things in this uh, blog post that um, we need to kind of get into. So the first several paragraphs are talking about kind of the current status, talking about the green run, uh, talking about these various components that are already done. Uh, but then we get into the part of this talking about uh, increased cost estimates for core development uh, of the SLS program. For the SLS itself, that development baseline cost is now $9.1 billion. Now, development baseline cost, it doesn't mean that the second SLS is going to cost $9.1 billion. I think they've said they expect each launch to be between like one and like one to one and a half billion dollars per launch, but you have a lot of cost up front 
and the design work, building the test stands, building the tooling, all of that stuff that you need to replicate these in the future, uh, a lot of that cost is just upfront. And uh, so that is now climbed to $9.1 billion. And for the ground support system, so everything at the launch site, uh, we've talked about the the mobile launch pad and all of those systems that have to be put into place, uh, that has now increased to $2.4 billion. Now, in this blog post, it doesn't say how much, by, by how much these costs have increased. Uh, we can look back to a government accountability office report back in April that uh, assessed NASA's SLS development being $8.75 billion and ground support system at $2.3 billion as of January. So we could say from January until August, we've seen an increase of between 3 and 4% for each side of this program. Uh, both of these, though, are th- roughly 30% above the original baseline cost estimates. And there's deep in the legislation that funds all of this, there's a threshold. And that threshold is 30%. So if these budgets... Uh, increased by that much, Congress has to be formally notified by NASA, and that can start a process to uh, reevaluate the funding for the program called rebaselining. Uh, I, I assume that involves a lot of spreadsheets and argument in Congress, mm-hmm. but yep, um, that's probably basically exactly what it is. Um, so Congress has been notified of that, but as is the lesson, as we keep coming back to in these conversations. I think it's unlikely that Congress is really going to change anything uh, in terms of SLS and its ground support system. Uh, SLS is popular in Congress. It it creates a lot of jobs in a bunch of different congressional districts. Um, In the House Appropriations Bill for 2021, which was passed in July, uh, $343 million and $75 million for the SLS and ground support systems uh, were... Granted, um, above the administ- the administration's request, so whatever NASA had put in, that an extra three hundred forty three million for SLS, an extra seventy five million dollars for ground support systems. Um, now the Senate hasn't taken up that version of the spending bill. I don't know when they when they do that, but at some point they will probably. And um, I think that that would also be okay because you've got Senator uh, Richard Shelby, who is from Alabama powerful advocate for the SLS. A lot of that research and development happens in his state. In short, the SLS never dies despite his budget. No, you can't Can't stop it. it. Mm -mm. Even though it is way too expensive and it, and it's being developed and it may get used, you know, a handful of times, but politics. Yeah. Yep. And not, you know, neither of us are saying that they they should kill it. I don't think. I think we were understanding that this is an important tool for NASA to have, but that's a lot of money that could buy a lot of launches from other people. <laughs> yeah, I I'm I'm not not saying they should kill it. <laughs> sure. I mean, it is becoming a bigger and bigger sunk cost fallacy as it, as the program goes along. Um, and I get that it's human rated and 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 having a human rated rocket that's this powerful, it, it will be necessary for certain missions. But if they had, you know, it, going back in time, like if they had just invested in getting another a commercial rocket human rated, 
uh, it would have taken a fraction of the cost of this thing. But this thing exists, as we've detailed in many episodes, exists for a lot of reasons, including politics, just pure politics. It's a job creation program that makes every representative proud of the fact that their district is involved in the space program. And um, it would be nice if the cost didn't keep rising and if they actually used it. So we'll see. The segment continues forever. That's right. At the at the end of the day, the SLS segment will still be here. Uh, yeah, SLS segment abides. Mm-hmm. It's with us always. Uh, but it's over for now. And now I'm going to tell you about our other sponsor. How about that? Sounds good. As a transition. Yes, from the SLS segment. This episode is also brought to you by Eero. These days, um, so many of our houses aren't just our homes. They are our offices, too. I have had four people as... Uh, using it as a school or an office for the last few months. I'm sure a lot of you are in the same situation. And then, of course, at the end of the day, it's still also your entertainment hub. You're, you know, making your meals. Uh, You know, you are using your Wi-Fi. You're using the Internet, if you're like me, all the time and way more than you did before. And it's not good enough if you have to, like, crowd into one room where the Internet is. You want Wi-Fi coverage in your whole house. If it's a nice day, maybe you've got a backyard. You can go outside there, get some work done from there. Uh, you want coverage, and that's why you need Eero. Eero is an Amazon company, and it covers your whole home with fast, reliable Wi-Fi inside and out. Rooms with bad and no Wi-Fi, dropouts on your patio, Eero makes those things a thing of the past by making every square foot of your house usable. They eliminate poor coverage and dead spots, so you can have a consistently strong signal wherever you need it. Be on a work call, the kids are remote learning, someone's streaming videos. Who is that person? Why aren't they working? All at the same time without any buffering when you've got Eero. Eero is fast and easy to set up. You just plug it into your modem and you're good to go. You can manage it from a very simple app. You can even pause the meal if you're being annoyed that your kids are looking at their phones during dinner or whatever, and you get little push notifications. I love this when a new device joins your network, which is pretty cool. We had a visit from some people who came into our backyard to say hello to us, and I knew they were here because I got a push notification saying a new device had joined the network. I said, I think they're outside. Uh, anyway, I like it. I, I use it in my house, uh, and it's super easy to use and super easy to set up using that app. So... Um, I, I definitely think you should consider Eero. Now, we're asking a lot of our Wi-Fi. Eero can help yours do more. So go to eero.com slash liftoff and enter code liftoff at checkout to get free next day shipping with your order. That's eero.com slash liftoff. Code liftoff at checkout to get your Eero delivered with free next day shipping. eero.com slash liftoff. Code liftoff. Thank you, Eero, for supporting Liftoff and all of Relay FM. The next segment in our document is labeled Black Hole. Did you enter that in while you were um, flying into a black hole? Yes. Oh, welcome back. Thank you. How was it? I've been spaghettified. It's not great. I'm way taller than I used to be. Oh, good. Congratulations. Thank you. You're thinner and taller. What's what's not to like? Just jump in a black hole today. That's right. Uh, Black holes. Where do we learn about black holes, Stephen? There's one... Uh, there's one new instrument, it's actually three new observatories that have been telling us a lot about black holes. That's right. We've got LIGO, which is yep. basically, there, there's two components of the LIGO observatory. There, There's one in Washington and Washington State, and the other is in Louisiana. Yeah, it's the and we got to do a little, uh, little acronym check, Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. Pretty, pretty solid. And uh, yeah, so there's there's two 
installations in the U.S. And then there's Virgo, which is in Italy. And they're all basically doing the same thing, which is that it's long L-shaped kind of laser beam corridors. And they're sensing very, very minute fluctuations in space-time caused by gravitational waves. And when they went online, we've we've talked about this before, but like when they went online, just a little primer here, um, it, it ushered in a real, like a new age of astronomy because this is astronomy that rather rather than detecting things via... Uh, a light or via radio waves or you know various frequencies of of, of light uh, visible and and infrared and ultraviolet and you know, all the rest this uses gravity it actually uses gravity to see things happening in the universe and it works and it's worked repeatedly and it's pretty amazing so you've got those you've got those two uh, the l-shaped tubes it's four kilometers long in in ligo it's three kilometers long i think in virgo um, and you know, you shoot a laser down them and it's reflected. And if space time wiggles a little bit, you notice, and then you have them in different places because then you can confirm that it wasn't a car driving by. And you can also, um, uh, triangulate the location in space of where it is based on when the signals were received and the orientation of the signal in the various three locations. It's pretty mm-hmm. cool. And they made another discovery um, and a paper came out in the last couple of weeks about it. So this is another black hole collision. They've been seeing these th- black holes colliding causes these massive gravitational waves that can be detected far, far away. And so LIGO has been seeing a lot of that. And this latest one is interesting because Again, it's all about like the size of the black holes that are colliding with one another in this case. And this is an 85 solar mass black hole, so 85 times the mass of our sun, and a 66 solar mass black hole. And they collided to form a 142 solar mass black hole, 17 billion light years away. Now, uh, if you do the math in your head really quickly, you'll notice eight solar masses uh, didn't get transferred. And that's because that was released as energy in the form of gravitational waves. So eight solar masses converted to energy. That's a, that's a very, I was going to say massive, but you know, ha, uh, enormous amount of energy, enormous amount of energy, enough to ripple space time across 17 billion light years to us. Um, and you know, what's interesting about the, the story. And I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, like we, the size of black holes is supposed to have some limits because above a certain point, a star just explodes in a giant supernova and doesn't leave a black hole behind. Right. So you really only get a black hole sort of under a hundred solar masses or over a hundred thousand solar masses. So we've seen these supermassive black holes at the center of galaxies that we think is actually involved in galaxy formation. And we have individual ones from large stars, um, but what we know suggests that especially between 50 and 120 solar masses, you you really shouldn't be able to form black holes. But this is at least one and maybe two of those as the sources. The implication here is that one or both of these black holes were probably the result of other mergers before they merged themselves. And that this is one of the ways that you get black hole growth going from a little black hole that is the result of a collapsing star and you end up with this enormous black hole perhaps at the center of a galaxy is merger after merger after merger of these heavy heavily gravitationally attractive objects um and uh so so ligo and virgo found this and it's fascinating i I, one of the stories i read about it one of the scientists said basically like they're they're making our jobs easy by making Mm -hmm. this confusing about black hole mass because those scientists who are trying to figure out like how black holes are created and the different ways that they can they can be created and accumulate seeing these things that aren't supposed to exist 
um, either it leads you down a path of, well, why, why do they exist? Or it leads you down the path of, what does this say about black hole collisions and how larger black holes are formed from smaller black holes? So pretty cool. Um, and uh, and this is a, a big, I mean, those are very, very massive black holes coming together to form an even more massive one. Uh, 17 billion light years away. So I don't know. It's great. And this is just new. This is new science. This this stuff wasn't happening when we started this podcast. It's pretty great. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the the absolute explosion data we had about exoplanets. Exactly. Uh, and, exactly. And now we have it about, about black holes and this space-time rippling. Uh, one thing that is cool, too, about these observatories that we didn't mention is they don't have to be, because they're not actually looking, right? They're just detecting we can sense these from any direction, right? So think about something right. like Hubble. It's pointed at a section of the sky. If something happens on the other side of the planet out in space, we don't we don't see it with Hubble, right? So these these are observatories that basically have a 360-degree field of view and, right. and can detect something that happened, you know, 17 billion light years away, finally made its way to us. It's really kind of mind-blowing because these work in such different ways than what we think of as traditional observatories. Right. And because they're uh, oriented on different parts of the globe, we can use their their signals to triangulate where that ripple came from, uh, which is also a a clever part of how this is is done. It's great. It's it's awesome technology. I'm sure that if to go there and see it, it would be kind of boring because it's just a tube that runs for four kilometers. But... Mm -hmm. Uh, the science is very exciting. Very exciting. Yeah, and we're learning more and more about black holes, which is fascinating. They're fun. Everybody loves a black hole. Just don't go near one. Got to stay again. away. Yeah. Mm. I think that's it. I think that's it. I think we've reached the end. We talked about black holes. We talked about rockets. I mean, what more do you want? It's a pretty good, pretty good day. Pretty good fortnight. Yeah. If you want to find links to the stuff that we spoke about, head on over to the website relay.fm slash liftoff slash 132 uh while you're there you can send us an email with feedback or follow-up and you can also find us on twitter jason is there as j snell you can find me on twitter as ismh Uh, once again we are marking national childhood cancer awareness month during september you can learn more and donate at saintjude.org slash relay which we would really appreciate and jason until our next fortnight say goodbye Bye, everybody. Bye, y'all.